Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad. Hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm joined by Rick Catazone, who you might remember from movies such as Creep Show, Creep Show 2, Evil Dead 2, and Night of the Living Dead, and lots of other things. Um, I've been working on trying to get Mr. Catazone to sit down and have an interview with me for a while, and I finally got to do it. How are you doing today, Mr. Catazone? Doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm really happy that you and I are finally getting a chance to do this interview. As you, you and I have met a couple times at Monster Bash, and you and your wife are just really nice people and great to talk to. Well, thank you. And this seems to be a general consensus, but I think it's always nice to hear, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true, I would just probably say something else, but (laughs) unless I gave you 50 bucks and then you might say, (laughs) well, yeah, I guess you, you know, I guess guess you'd say listeners, the checks in the mail, but if you, (laughs) right, exactly. But if you ever do go to monster bash and, or whatever convention that Mr. Catazun's at, go to his table, talk to him. He's, more than willing to talk about the stuff he's going to be talking about in this interview. And also he has lovely um, kits that you can purchase that are, you know, that he's gone through the love and putting again. I don't know if you want to take a minute before we get started proper with your stuff, but those resin kits I saw at your table were wonderful. Well, thank you. uh, Well, after I retired from teaching, I thought I would, think about what I might want to do is um, maybe something could build a little income, but maybe have some fun as well. And I decided that I'd always wanted to do some resin kits. And so I started working on those and I found that it was um, a bit different in terms of mold making than, than for the traditional stuff I've done with say stop motion puppets and so on. But I mean, there's a lot of similarities and there's some big differences. So uh, it was a learning experience, but I think with each one, they've gotten a little bit better and, um, gotten a lot of good reaction from them so i guess i'm getting close to hitting the mark i think so and i know being a ray harryhausen fan you know a few of your kits have always caught my eye and that's what the ymir and the cyclops i mean it's just i look at them and i'm just like oh you know i I, I want to get and i think you have a huge love, I think, for Ray Harryhausen type films growing up, or, or maybe all the way through in adulthood. I don't know, but is that true? I'm assuming he's probably was one of your main influences. Oh yeah. Um, when I was even back when I was, you know, quote unquote little, you know, seven, eight, whatever. My dad would always put on whenever it was on TV, he'd put on you know King Kong or Son of Kong, and then later Mighty Joe Young, and um, you know, as I was getting older, you know, say maybe around ten, twelve age. Um, I knew it wasn't a cartoon, but I knew it wasn't real. I don't remember if he tried to explain to me or if he even knew, <clears throat> but um, there was always something magical about those films. And of course, Ray's films too. I mean, of course, Ray animated most of Joe Young, but then also, you know, the, the Emir and 20 Million Miles and um, The Beast. So I saw that first article that Corey Ackerman did, I guess around 1962 or 63. And it was the first time I had seen pictures of the models, uh, who Ray was. And right then and there, I I mean, I always wanted to be a comic book artist or maybe an animator. But when I read that article on Ray, it was like, this is what I want to do. This is cool. You know, this is what I want to do. 
And so I started focusing more towards animation. And then, um, of course, I was studying everything I could find. I used to film his movies when they'd be on TV. I'd film them in 8mm and then get them back and study them. And, you know, well, how did he do this? Why, you know, oh, look at the way the character shifts here before he moves there. And basically, before I knew anything about animation principles, I was writing down and making up principles from watching Ray's film. And then um, oh, a lot later, I got to meet him a number of times and started writing back and forth. And I guess we wrote back and forth for, I don't know, maybe over a period of 15 or 20 years, which was wonderful. You know, it's great being able to stay in contact with and have some community with uh, the man who inspired you. So, yeah, it was very meaningful. So in a sense, you were, you went to um, an ad hoc school of Harryhausen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I referred to him as my inspiration, um, but it wasn't like I was sitting there next to him, you know, um, always wanted to be, but, you know, that no, that never happened. So, um, but yeah, he's, he was my main inspiration. That was when I saw those photos, you know, the light bulb went off and um, I still kind of wanted to be a comic book artist since I was a little kid. And then my aunt was also getting me some of the very early Walter Foster books on uh, cartoon and animation work. And I would watch the Disney shows where they would, when they had a new movie coming out, they'd always run how they made the movie as a way to get everybody thrilled about going to see it. But I was more interested in watching the animators and the technique and watching the drawings flip and seeing the motion. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind, but again, it was, you know, seeing that you could actually build puppets and then they would have shadows and dimension and it seemed like the cool thing to me. Oh, I, I grew up watching monster movies and Harryhausen's especially, and it was just, I always enjoyed stop motion. I still enjoy stop motion. Um, I, I, I still, the way he brought everything to life and had the characteristics and everything in him was just, it's just a joy. I mean, it's just, it's, I think it makes anybody of all ages happy when they watch that, that love he put into it and just gets drawn to a different world. Yeah. It's, it's hard now, you know, for somebody watching it, you know, if they're young today, because they don't really grasp the place in history where when Ray was doing his early black and white films and then even his early color films, but mostly during that black and white period in the 50s and early 60s, well, mainly the 50s, I guess, um, you know, the other alternative were very poor, you know, real lizards with fins pasted on them, which, you know, they would call it a T-Rex, but, you know, I've got anatomy books and stuff that's not a T-Rex. Um, as a kid, I was always like, that's not a T-Rex, you know, come on, get serious. Um, and then it was either that or it was, some kind of exotic marionette or worse yet a full-size prop on stage that, you know, somebody's pushing down on some levers and it kind of moves a little bit, but it never, it never did anything specific. Like Ray's characters would walk and turn and um, advance towards the camera and turn around, walk across the stage, pick somebody up, you know, all those things that never happened in the other features or, or of course the, the insect movies, you know, locusts or praying mantises or whatever and putting them over photo cutouts, you know, for scale. So race, race stuff was always very 
um, very integrated and very specific. The characters could always do something very specific, and they always had weight. You really believed that they had, you know, a certain weight to them when they when they walked and moved. Where a lot of the other types of effects that were being done, they were a little bit, you know, they were off. You know, you could just you know inherently from watching animals move and stuff. So yeah, pretty cool stuff. Oh, definitely. And as you said, he was one of your main motivations and which led to you to go to college and you got, um, basically you studied what, um, um, media arts and animation and got a bachelor in that. And then eventually you got your master. Well, yeah, with but that the- was actually later. I mean, my, my career path was a bit different. Um, once I saw that article in famous monsters, I started trying to build puppets and, shoot some pretty crude stop motion stuff with some rear projection um, while I was in high school. And one year out of high school, I, my aunt happened to work in a bank and one of her clients that always came to her window was Bob Wolcott of the animators. And she said, the animator, she says, you guys do animation. And she said, he said, yes. And she said, well, I have this nephew that makes these animated films and stuff. And she said, do you think you could, maybe make time to see him and give him some advice or anything. And he said, sure. So a couple of months later, I got to get in there and show him my stuff. And then one year out of high school, he basically hired me to run the animation stand. So that was how I got in there. I never got any degrees. I was like working in the field one year out of high school. And I did that for 14 years with Bob and then started my own company. The only reason I have any degrees um, was because when I was teaching, I don't know, maybe 10 years into teaching, they wanted to do um, degree programs. And they said, well, everybody's going to have to have a bachelor's degree. And it's like, well, where am I going to go to get somebody who knows more than me to teach me? You know, And it didn't matter. You had to get a degree. So I went through and got a bachelor's degree. And then um, master's was supposed to be down the road. But no sooner had I spent that time getting my bachelor's degree, and they announced that everybody has to get a master's degree because we're going to be giving out higher degrees. And it's like, oh, come on. You can't be serious. So then I had to devote another, whatever it was, three or four years to go get a master's degree. So that's why I have the degree. I mean, you know, it's nice to have as a title. And, and speaking of Jim Apparel, um, he graciously was a mentor for one of my courses. I got to pick my own instructors for the coursework which i designed for my masters which of course had to all be approved but i i got some of the top people in the field i got jim and i got ernie farino to do another one for me and doug bestwick did another one um so i thought well if i have to go do this and i can pick my own instructors i'm going to call people in the field i know who you know know more than me in different areas so i'll actually be working towards something and feel that i got something out of it Oh, that's wonderful. And, um, you know, you got, I didn't, I didn't know you took classes with or were, were mentored by Jim at all. And, um, and for listeners wondering, you can go back to, um, an early episode with Jim apparel, uh, and, and hear the interview of him and, and, and his life. But I, I didn't know you two had that connection. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I picked a program that would allow me to, um, they're, they had several different types of master's programs. And one of them was if you had a special 
um, interest area, which I do with animation, of course, um, they would allow you to pick people. And of course they had to approve them. So I picked top people. I mean, you know, the list of Jim's credits or Ernie's credits, you know, fill a couple of pages and Doug's too. So there wasn't any supervised the work and they evaluated the work and then wrote up a, uh, an evaluation for me. That was how you got your work in, which was later on. But I am so your aunt to me is now, is now one of my heroes. Because if it wasn't for her, <laughs> your career path could have been totally different. Yeah, it could have because I, I had called down to the animators, and um, you know I, in my teenage way, you know, asked if um, they had any job openings or anything, and um, I didn't go into a lot of detail about myself because I was rather introverted. So you know, she said, "No, we pretty much have people do it." And I said, "Well." You know, I said, I'll do anything. I said, I'll sweep floors, you know, just to be in there. And, you know, and she said, well, we have people that do that too. You know, the building had a crew, you know, so um, I thought, oh, well, there's, you know, that, you know, so, you know, maybe in my mind, I was thinking, well, I need to get some more samples together and then maybe actually try and make an appointment. Um, I don't know that I would have thought that far ahead, but um, God intervened and made sure that uh, I found a way into that company into the field that I wanted to be in. So. Well, like I said, uh, your, your aunt's one of my heroes now. So we're, because <laughs> uh, thankfully she had that foresight with the person there, put two and two together and did that, you know, family. Well, you know, they, didn't have a, they, they didn't have a choice, Steve, because um, I mean, most of, most of my relatives were really pretty interested and kind of intrigued with the, stuff this idiot kid was doing you know so you know they'd have us over for dinner and i'd say you want me to bring my movies and they go sure so i bring my projector and whatever latest test i was doing you know they used to rave about it and stuff it's like wow that's really great you know it's like you know, it kind of was in a way but you know it's amateurish to me but um the people who went, wow this kid actually put something together and it looks like it's moving and alive and you know Maybe he could, maybe he could actually go somewhere, you know? He, he could, he can be somebody. He could become somebody. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I wanted to be a comic book artist, nobody, nobody was very encouraging in that. <laughs> like you can't make any, can't make any money doing that. And it's like, well, even when I got into animation, um, my mom said, you know, you ought to, you ought to go be a, um, go be a mechanical engineer. You're pretty good at mechanical drawing and stuff. And, I said, oh, I would hate that. <laughs> I mean, it was an intriguing part about it, but I, you know, it's not what I wanted to do. And uh, she said, I know, which is, you know, this is back in 1960, probably would have been 65, I guess, um, when we were 66, maybe even when we had the conversation, which is like, Bobby's making like $25 an hour. <laughs> you know, it was like $25 an hour back in, or close to that, whatever it was, um, back in 1966 was a lot of money. <laughs> And it's like, you, you maybe ought to think about doing that. It's like, but I would hate it every day, mom, you know, so, but they were, my parents were supportive. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, and obviously it, it worked out for you. Let's say it, it worked out for you in the end. Yeah. Now, how did you get involved in night of the living dead? Well, that's a lot of the things that 
Um, I mean, aside from going out and digging up commercials, animated commercials of you know, cute little characters and stuff, that was. I first met George whenever we would um, do animated titles for him, or a lot of times people would need, uh, they'd have some stills and they'd want a camera move on them just so they wouldn't be sitting there kind of dead. And those jobs would always come over to us as the animators. When George was working on Night of the Living Dead, you know, he got together with Bob and wanted Bob to work out this, uh, not just the titles, but the, the end sequence. Once George decided he wanted to have the life and action freeze from when Dwayne gets shot until the uh, fire actually starts, he wanted to handle that all with camera moves. And so we were plotting out all the camera moves over the photos and Bob would draw layouts over top in tissue or on acetate and uh, based on what George was telling him, or in some cases, I think George says, you know, well, what do you think we got to do here? And Bob would tell him because Bob did that all the time too. That's, we knew, we knew George from commercials and then that's how we got on the Night of the Living Dead. And then I'm not sure exactly. We did move into the same building as George over 247 Fort Pitt Boulevard. And I'm guessing maybe at one point George said, hey, there's some space open. You know, we're doing so much work together. What do you think about moving over here? It'll be a lot more convenient for both of us. And I'm guessing maybe that's why it was. And also it was a bigger space. And so we uh, moved over to 247 and we were on the second floor. And so that's how our first work with George began. And then even after I had my own company, I mean, we saw each other, once we were in the same building, we saw each other going to lunch, you know, going home, coming in in the morning. Well, not too often going home, but <laughs> coming in the morning and at lunchtime or something, um, stopping up just to say hi or them stopping down to say hi or um, the first day that Mike Gornick was there and they brought him down for us to meet him and stuff. Um, we were just constantly seeing each other and working on things together. So um, most of the work that I did for George was kind of a natural progression of years of working together on first commercials and um, industrials and then into a feature film on Night of Living Dead, and then, you know, after that, some of the other titles. I, I really enjoy watching the Night of the Living Dead, you know, and, of course, to me, at the conclusion, your end credit sequence fits so well with what just happened in the movie. And it, it, I, I really – I really I, – I know you said you guys – planned it all out with George and everything, but it really worked well with how it, it played out. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, again, people watching it today, they've seen so much stuff in the same way that, um, a lot of Hitchcock films, you know, Spielberg and others learned off of those and the faster pace that they began to add to it because, you know, everybody's improving on something else. Uh, that just naturally means that a lot of times when I go back and watch some classic Hitchcock things, they can seem a little bit slow, but they certainly weren't slow when I saw them at the time. They were pretty, you know, frantic. Mm -hmm. um, so when when you saw Night of the Living Dead, which was a shock to begin with, and then when the hero gets killed, oh, spoiler, <laughs> <laughs> 
um, <laughs> when the hero gets killed. And then after that, everything freezes. It's like, you know, your heart stops and then so does the movie. And then you're taken through this sort of dreamlike sequence because he's gone. And then everything kicks up again. And when he put the mask to the fire, then you're back into the live action. The fire is the thing that brings it back to, to life again. So, yeah, it was very creative. It was very, I thought, kind of genius to do that instead of just handling it the normal way. Oh, exactly. I thought it was brilliant because it just makes it stick with you longer. And, and, and it's a way of making it stick with you longer, but still getting the, mo- the new movie is still moving on because it's doing it with the end credit sequence. And it just has that lingering, like you, you can't believe what you just saw. And then you're seeing the aftermath, but there's no, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's nothing else really happening except for you to reflect on that until it gets, like you said, to the bonfire. Yeah. It's, I mean, it was unusual to have a, a black hero, for that point in time and then it was even more unusual to kill the hero um you know shane gets killed but nobody's ever sure i guess but <laughs> well yes everybody's still wondering that the, the shane right you know, that, that's something in the movie shane that he, people argue about dead. all the time <laughs> <laughs> they slumped over his saddle he's dead anyways <laughs> i agree with you but i know there's going to be somebody out there that's going to be like, oh, he's still not dead. I'm like, but you know, not, not dead yet. Not dead yet. <laughs> and you never know. You might have came back as a zombie and he's still out there now. I mean, you know, somebody could have dragged him off the saddle and, and pulled all the bullets out and revived him and stuff. You know, there was no Shane, too. So that tells you everything you need to know. That is true. That is true. And there was, there was no son of Shane. <laughs> they could have done go- they could have done Ghost of Shane and then we would have all known but they didn't you know? see, see now there's somebody out there right now that's probably listening to this thinking I got an idea <laughs> yeah right because Hollywood's always going back to the classics so it's and, 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 and reworking them and redoing them so I'm sure there's somebody out there that's going to you know uh, redo that property they might take it from the west and move it to more of a modern thing yeah they're going to make Shane with a female lead. I know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> if you want to remake it, remake it the way it was. Don't remake it. I mean, you shouldn't be remaking classic movies anyways, but that's a different conversation. Yes, it is. And, and speaking of, to me of a movie that I, I enjoyed when it came out, I saw it in the movie theaters and I, I, I just love it is creep show. And you did a lot of different things in creep show. Yeah. Um, the first stuff I did was uh, actually the sculpting work. The animation didn't uh, come along till later. And I think um, I think some of it came along because they couldn't really accomplish things that they were trying to accomplish. One of those things being the comic book blowing down the street, which they probably could have rigged and gotten away with, but trying to get the comic book to land and open to the exact right page. Um, you know, that's like <laughs> probably impossible, but if not, it's certainly nearly impossible. And Mike was showing me a real giant reel of outtakes of them trying to get it. And, you know, just, it, it's an impossible thing to try and make them do live, you know, 
but they were trying at first. I mean, I admire the effort and, you know, who knows it could have worked. You know, sometimes things do work, but I think that's one of the main things that brought about a lot of the animation work. Uh, but first I was doing, uh, Sculpts for Tom, he came in one day and he said, hey, I have this creature and it's, you know, it's going to be kind of like a werewolf, but it's not a werewolf, it's just creature in a crate. Um, I think he had a drawing of the face at that point. And he said, um, I'll give you a cast of Daryl's hands and I want you to sculpt, you know, some kind of, you know, like werewolf arms and hands and they have to be real powerful, but not like a werewolf. <laughs> like, okay, so a werewolf, but not a werewolf. And so on... Uh, one of the hand casts of Daryl, I started doing what you see in the movie. And on the other one, I started designing a real heavy, powerful cat's paw. But I thought it would be really cool with retractable claws. You could build anticipation, like the paw would come up, and then the claws would open out. And, you know, it would look a little more alien, too, if I, if I did it right. <clears throat> so I was really rooting for that one, and I showed him both to Tom, and he said, well, that's kind of interesting. He said, but I really like the other one. That's like, of course you do, you know? <laughs> so it's like, again, not the one I wanted to do, but that's okay. It wasn't my character. It was his character. So I knew that's probably what he wanted, which is, that was the first one I did. And I did the other one on the other hand is a, you know, an alternative version. Cause he said, no, it's Tom, do you have any drawings? And he said, well, no, he said, see what you come up with. You know, it's like, okay, see what I come up with. So I looked at a lot of, you know, Grey's Anatomy and stuff to try and get uh, the essence of what, you know, how to make this thing look powerful because Daryl has small hands. And I thought, well, wow, that even makes it trickier because I've got to make sure all the bend points match the bend points in his hand or they won't look right when he opens and closes his hands. And at the same time, it has to look really strong. So I just tried to exaggerate the tendons from the knuckles and so on and in the thumb and um, gave it a pretty hefty muscle area between the index finger and the thumb and just tried to make it look really, really strong. And then um, once he picked the one that he wanted, then I did the other hand and finished off both of those. And then I went to the uh, feet. He gave me cast of somebody's hands. I don't know if they were Daryl's or not. Uh, flat. And then I sculpted the feet over top of that. Then he gave me some cast of like from the neck to maybe just below the navel, and I sculpted a chest for it, chest and little navel area for that. And then I did um, the hands from Father's Day, just the the basic with the torn flesh and the knuckles and everything. And then Tom did some finishing, and then he put a lot of you know. I think it's crispies and stuff. He told me um, to get the look of dirt and everything else that was over top of all that. And then I did a twisted neck. I'm not sure. I think Tom probably redid that and wanted more twist to it. I did uh, the face for the girl in Tide because um, Tom was doing the Ted Danson one. And he said, it takes a long time to do this. And he said, can you think of any way to do a really fast one? And I said, the only thing I know that I could try, Tom, if you want, I said, I think we could maybe take cotton and dip it in latex because, you know, I wanted this saggy, drippy thing. So I said, well, if we took the cotton and latex and then just kind of formed it over her face, 
that would be about the quickest way that I can think of to, to get that. So I did that and he looked at it and he liked it a lot, but I think when he went to make the mold, um, there were obviously issues because the thin plaster was getting in and around some of these. And so I'm not sure if he actually just kind of took it down and worked from that and made a second mold from that, or if he actually redid it. I, I don't know, but yeah, I did a sculpt for that as well. Now, when you do a sculpt for these different things, and, and you said, how well, Tom said it takes a long time, how long does it typically take to do like hands or feet and a chest and a face? I mean, because these are all different things. Boy, I, I don't even remember now. I mean, it used to take, <clears throat> say, to do a stop motion puppet, um, you know, a creature or even sometimes a cute little character. Um, you know, you're, you probably got a stall a week of sculpting to do a, you know, like a 12 inch, 14 inch creature. Um, it could be more, uh, doing the hands. I, I don't, I don't even actually remember at this point. Well, I'm, I'm um, just, 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 just I mean, they weren't, they weren't super finished, you know, but I, I think maybe, um, certainly several days to do the first one. And then, um, you know, I don't know, maybe four days. I don't know three days and then um, matching the other one to it. So the hands on the father's day one, um, I think that probably took a little longer because he wanted the flesh torn open and you had to see the bones underneath it and stuff. So a little more attention to reality there that I had to do. And of course, when you're doing something that has to be super specific, that can take longer. When I was doing Fluffy's hands, it was kind of, make it look cool, you know? So I wasn't working to some pre-designed piece that I had to exactly match. I had the ability to just kind of build it to be what I wanted to. So that's, that's a little less demanding in my mind that I don't have to exactly go match something else. Just makes it you know easier. It goes faster. Oh, exactly. and, and for listeners that aren't as familiar with who was involved in Creep Show, when you're referring to Tom, you're referring to Tom Savini. Is there any other Tom? There's no other Tom, is there? I know. We but... all call. <laughs> there's only one Tom. There's only one George. Well, no, I guess actually technically there are two Georges, right? I mean, there was like had to make a Star Wars film or something. Um, but but around here in Pittsburgh, you know, when anybody says George, it means George. And, anybody says Greg, it means Greg. And if anybody says Tom, it means Tom. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, for our, for, we have listeners all across the world, so I just want to make sure not everybody's watched. Oh, Tom, Tom's legion of fans would make sure everybody knew which Tom it was. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't have any doubt. But it just, just, to, just to make it easier for, for the total person listening to this and that has never seen Creep Show and has no idea who Tom Savini is, they'll know. <laughs> oh, that's who they're talking yeah. about. Um, Tom, Tom Savini's a magician and effects guy who does some pretty cool things he, he's done some wonderful things and um and, and hopefully one day i'll be able to interview him it's you know and uh, discuss it discuss his work but but yeah it is it, it's it's what can you say <laughs> yeah i know now also you said you were involved in with creep show you also helped with the um animated you know besides the comic book you did. You also helped produce or do the opening and closing animation, and and, and you know things like that. So what? 
So what were your ideas? Were, were they told? Were you basically told this is what they want, or did you have how much? How much leeway did you have? You mean with the creep? Yeah, with the creep. Well, the creep had to start from the same position as Tom's creep in the window, and so once I mean they wanted it to, originally. I guess it's probably in the original script. I'm sure because they were talking about wanting to get a crane to be able to pull back from outside the house and stuff. And, you know, it was too expensive. I forget if it was $20,000 to rent the crane they needed or whatever. Um, so they said, well, you know, this is an EC comic book and animation. Why don't we do animation? So our creep starts from Tom's and there's a lightning strike there. And then we quickly dissolve to our creep. And then he gestures the way George wanted him to gesture a particular way with his hand. And then it pulls away from the window and we follow it, it points down and we track down quickly to the garbage can and probably another lightning flash. And then we're into a close up on the garbage can with the animated comic book. And the first, I think it's the first shot of it is probably the stop motion comic book. Um, because we knew we needed this comic book and some of the pages would have to turn fairly realistically and not as fast as when it's blowing down the street. Um, I mean, now with computer animation, like I actually, I did a sample for Greg where I took the old art and did it on a CG comic book and turned the pages and stuff. And it looks really cool um, as a sample. But we didn't have computers back then. Mm -hmm. And to do it any other way would have been very expensive. So what I did was I took the artwork for the pages we'd need and we Xeroxed that onto newsprint. And then we hand colored it with colored pencil, put together a mock-up comic book. And then I shot it laying on a stage at an angle that would be correct for what I needed and animated the pages turning a frame at a time using tape and a surface gauge and you know whatever I needed to control the pages to turn over and lay down again. And then once I had those done, I sent them out, had them blown up to the size I needed, cut them out with an exacto knife and taped them down onto acetate and put those over Phil's backgrounds of the garbage can or the street or whatever the particular shot was. It's amazing to hear because you always wonder exactly how certain things are done, and it's 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 to me to me it's just fascinating to find out. Um, um, well, here's the nuts and bolts. Here's the thing: like I said, we have computer animation, so no one can draw perfect enough to draw everything that would be on a comic book panel and animate that turning in perspective and keep it all correct. You know, it's impossible. Even Disney, you know, they on their films and stuff, when they had anything tricky like that, like Pinocchio's cage or a car that had to come at somebody, they would build it and then they would film it and they would trace it so that it would maintain its mechanical integrity because nobody can do that. So I knew that, you know, the problems we'd have and it wouldn't, wouldn't match. Now when it blows down the street and it's, you know, it, it's covering a lot of distance those are hand drawn and it's, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly matching because no one, I no one's eye could really follow it anyways. 
but once we were into the slow turns where it flips over, um, I knew we weren't going to get away with that. So I had to come up with a way to do it and making an actual book that I could shoot stop motion and could control seemed like the only answer, <laughs> at least at that period in time. Now I do it in the computer, but. <laughs> and that's why, and that's why I love about artists like yourself when with people that do effects, you have, you, you know what you want to try to do. And then you got to figure out what the technology you have available at that time. How am I going to pull this off? And on top of that, the budget you have at that time. So if you have all these constraints and I think the creative flow, like, okay, this is what I want to try to do. This is how much I have. Let's see what we can do to figure it out. And I just, I just, to me, I find it fascinating how you're able to go through all that and come up with the end product that you do. Well, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a little wrestling match at times, you know, you, sometimes it drives you insane and sometimes it drives you to creativity, but um, Disney did that constantly on, on his films. He had people always trying to solve new ways of doing, doing effects and, and things that would also get what he needed and save time, didn't have to be hand animated, but could look like it was. Um, he was always trying to work out a way to do that because, of course, those things cost a fortune. So, yeah, and well, going back to my high school experiments, um, when I took them in to show to Bob Wolcott, you know, he asked me, so, well, what kind of equipment do you have? And I said, well, I have an 8-millimeter projector and an 8-millimeter camera, or I have a 60-millimeter projector and an 8-millimeter camera. And my rear screen was four yardsticks screwed together with the largest piece of tracing paper I could find. I did split screens by putting a piece of glass in front and cutting out a piece of cardboard to the outline of the building I wanted it to go behind. And, you know, and I went through how I did everything and he goes, you can't do that with that kind of equipment. And I said, I know. And he said, that was one of the reasons he hired me because he said, well, if you could do that stuff without any equipment, I knew you'd be able to do some cool stuff with an actual animation stand. Exactly. That's what I mean. You know, it's a, you're, you're one of those types that's able to get around. Some people look at the obstacle and they, and they say, I can't get around it. I, it's like, it's like they stop there. And then there's people like yourself that are like, well, I can go, this can take me this direction. And you maybe it's like, you know, you can go around it to the left, around it to the right, or up or over, up and over or under. You know, you're able to figure out these different ways to get around the barrier uh, to get, you know, it might not be exactly what you could do if you had everything you really needed or wanted at the time, but you can find ways to get around so it can get the, the, the shot to be effective or sometimes really, really good. Well, yeah, but a lot of that is driven by the fact that when you take a job on, I mean, I, I was working at the animators, then I became a partner in the animators, then I have my own company. You know, when you take a job on, you don't get, well, a professional doesn't get to say, I can't figure it out, or I don't have any way to do this. You know, you have to come up with a way to do it. Um, my wife on, sometimes we would get unbelievably, insanely short deadlines. And, you know, we'd be getting close and she would go, you know, are you going to make the deadline? And I would look at her and smile and just say, we always make the deadline. You know, <laughs> even if I have to kill myself and work, you know, 
uh, 20 hours a day for the next five days. You know, the job will be done. <laughs> it will be the best I can do. It will be professional. It will be a great product for the client. But it's not a question of if it will get done. You know, it, it will get done. And as far as how it gets done, again, that's always a matter of, like you say, it's a matter of um, budget and the time you have. You know, sometimes money can make up for things when you don't have a lot of time. And sometimes time can make up for things when you don't have a lot of money. But you still have to come up with a solution, whichever whichever route you're going. And it does, it does force you to come up with some interesting ideas that maybe you wouldn't have. Because if you'd have had all the money, quote unquote, to do a job, you wouldn't have had to get, quote unquote, creative because, you know, if you don't have a way to build into the budget, sending something out for an optical effect to be done on the West Coast, like they usually have to be done in the past, um, which now I can do in my computer in no time and make sure everything matches perfectly the way I want. You, you have to come up with your own solution. And so, yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the things about people that have worked in Pittsburgh and a lot have gone on to um, a lot bigger careers and stuff. Um, and some have stayed and still had good careers, but everybody who's worked in Pittsburgh usually has multi-talents. You know, I mean, they may have a specific talent, but I guarantee you they probably have four peripheral talents too, because that's just kind of the atmosphere. You were allowed to, jump in and learn other things. You weren't pigeonholed into you this, so you can only do this. You could learn as much as you could learn. You could help on other things. And you were considered an asset if you could do more than one thing. Mm -hmm. So sometimes being in a quote unquote smaller studio and in a smaller market has pretty big advantages in terms of giving you opportunity. Oh, I, I agree with you because I, I live in the Baltimore area and it's, you know, you're near, you're near, to, similar to Pittsburgh in size, and you know, there's different things you can. I'm sure a lot of people could do, and some people want that journey where you go to New York or Hollywood or whatever for the bigger um, gigs and and all that stuff. And other people are like, no, I'm happy where I'm at, but then you got to diversify a little more to have that steady income. Yep. And I think that just helps you out in the long run because, like you said, it gives you more tools in the toolbox you can use and um, and helps with that creative flow. That way you're not just stuck with just being a one-trick pony. Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a good example is, uh, you know, when Don Bluth, um, he and the other animators at Disney were getting tired of, you know, the company was not really focusing on animation anymore. The animators were getting frustrated. You know, they – they were looking back and going, we turned out, you know, Pinocchio, one of the greatest films ever made, all technically and artistically. And, you know, now we're doing this and, you know, we're not. And so they decided to, you know, venture out and, and try and relearn a lot of the techniques that were used in those films because everybody, you know, like I said, got pigeonholed. You do this, you do this. Uh, I don't know how many effects animators were still around at that point, if any. And so, you know, Don Blue started with some people in his garage and in his house um, working to try and recapture and, and learn all the other elements 
and that led to, of course, um, Secret and Him, which was amazing to me. It was it was wonderful, and it was great for you know, Disney's work had been becoming very formula and kind of uninspiring, and that was one of the things that drove the animators to uh, to push themselves to try and forge something new, and you know. Bluth did. He came out with Secret of Nim, and it was like, wow, it's like all the cool stuff that I like, you know, just great animation, great performances, great effects, little reflections off the water and stuff, you know, I mean, stuff that most people probably don't even see, but it really creates an atmosphere. I, I remember seeing that one in the movie theater and, and just enjoying it also, and it's, and also spending a lot of quarters on, I think it was his, 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 computer his video game was i think it was called um dragon's lair dragon's lair thank you i was trying to remember the name i I lost a lot of quarters because you had to hit everything just the right way and it was just like ah (laughs) i still remember when i i had seen the game um just a little bit about it and i went into a um, store one day and there was a kid playing it he played it to the end so i got to watch all the animation and it was like, wow, because I, lo- I loved it. It was very uh, it was very over-the-top kind of stuff and a lot of uh, really pushing all the principles and, and a lot of humor in it, too. And then later on, I guess, I don't know, maybe five years after that, somewhere on a, a sale, the um, laser discs for Dragon's Lair, somebody had a set for sale. So I bought them. You know, it was like, cool, I can watch all these cuts back to back. Oh, I know it, it, that was the hardest thing was trying to find, I never found anybody that made it all the way through. So it was always like, I, we, I think the, the one time I saw somebody get more, I, I, I'm guessing more than halfway, not knowing the end. <laughs> Maybe they were close yeah. to the end. I don't know, but they, they were, they were going at it for a while and it was just like, wow, this is farther than I've ever made it. And I'm not having to pay a quarter. <laughs> well, I always wanted to see the dragon cause he, you know, he looked pretty cool. And it's like, I want to see this thing move and your know, kids would be playing and I'd try and play. And it's like, you know, I wasn't getting that far because I wasn't. I'm not a gamer, and uh, and that was pretty simple too, even back then. But um, I finally found somebody that got to the end. It's like, wow, that's that's pretty neat. Now, getting back to the creep show type stuff, um, I figure we might as well just talk about all the creep show at one time. Uh, creep show sure. two. Uh, you 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 able you were really able to put your stamp on the animation because there was, there was a solid amount of animation in that movie. Yeah. I think there's about 10 minutes that wound up in the film. I think we did a little over 11. I really wanted to do it because, you know, the creep was a character throughout the film. It would be the longest, longest single character I ever got a chance to work on. You know, most of the jobs, like I said, that we got in were, cute little animated characters and, you know, be a 30 second commercial and, you know, you design it and animate the spot and maybe never see it again. Or if it was a series, maybe you'd see it a couple of times, but here was this creep who did these long speeches, you know, 20 seconds. I think one of them is 30 seconds. So it was, it was fun to design them and to uh, actually be the creep. That's what I tell you. It's like, I'm the creep, you know, it's like, (laughs) No, it's not Tom in the beginning of the film. I'm the creep. I'm the creep who's all the way through. I'm the actor who acted the creep, you know. And so Joe Silver's voice is uh, perfect for the creep. So, yeah, it was um, 
it was the biggest piece of animation that I think we ever really did. And it was, um, we were trying to keep it style-wise, you know, it it was very low budget, but um, tried to keep it as full as we could get it. It wasn't going to be Disney full, but we tried to keep it as life-like as possible and still keep the characters stylized so that we knew we were in a comic book because that's what, you know, it's all based off the EC stuff. So you can't go super real anyways, which is a good thing because then you can't exaggerate it if it's too real. Mm-hmm. And what was, were you involved with the, um, the designing of the, the Venus fly traps? Well, we all were, <laughs> <laughs> um, Gary Hartle and Ron friends and myself, and I don't remember if Phil was doing any of those. Phil was doing backgrounds like crazy. So I don't know if he did. I can't recall. But basically, we were trying to come up with something. And I wanted to get something that was cobra-like. And, of course, if you look at the actual anatomy of a Venus flytrap plant, the head isn't mounted like a snake and facing the way it should to make that work. You know, it's kind of off-angled and on the side. <laughs> Like, well, that sucks because I really want to get this, you know, striking action. And I want these plants to be fighting over this kid. And um, so, you know, Gary was doing some drawings. Ron was doing some drawings. I was doing some drawings. And I don't think it was me. It could have been Gary. It could have been Ron. Uh, I think somebody actually thought, well, why are we trying to be a slave to this? Let's turn the head, you know. So they turned it so that the quote-unquote mouth opening was facing forward. It was like, oh, that's great. And nobody's going to care that that's not the way they really look. All they need to know is do these, you know, giant Venus flytrap plants that uh, don't exist anyway. So um, I'm sure we showed it to Mike and he said, yeah, that was fine. Which made my day because I really wanted this fighting serpent thing. And um, sadly, because there was so much other work and I was doing all the creep stuff, I only got to do two shots out of that sequence. Uh, I did the one where I kept the one for myself. I really wanted where they're fighting over the kid Mm -hmm. and then he chomps on him. So I did that one and that was kind of uh, challenging, but fun to work out with. I think there's five plants in that scene and the timing of the way they would pull and go back and forth before one would give up and be, I had the idea he'd be smarter than the other ones. And so instead of fighting and pulling away, He'd let go and give up and then go after it and overshoot it. So he wound up with the whole kid, you know, uh, trying to show that these things had some sort of higher thing. One could be smarter than the other, you know. Uh, But most of my time was occupied with the creep. And I did those flying demons that rip open the comic book. And I did Mr. Haig. Um, I didn't do any Billies that I I don't think. No, I'm sure I didn't do any Billies. That was mostly Phil and uh, some of Gary. And also there's, uh, you, you probably know, but there's, it got put off because of all the COVID stuff, but there's a book coming out on uh, the making of Creepshow 2 uh, by Lee Carr. Oh, there is. It, 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 so it, it'll be coming out sometime, I guess, in the near future? because um, at least... Well, it was supposed to be out already. Let me see. I, I think last time I saw it was like maybe pushed back to September again. Um I'm trying to uh, look here real fast. 
Uh, let's see. This says August 16th is the current date. Well, that'd be good. And so I gave Lee, I gave Lee, it should be cool. I mean, he got a bunch of stuff from everybody. I gave him everything from scans of, um, like some of the color palettes for the different characters, um, exposure sheets, animation drawings, some cells, um, a little bit of everything that I had that would work to uh, get that across. And I did the cover for the book. Now I got now I got something to add to my my birthday's in October, so I can add it to my birthday list and hope and hope the wife will pick up the hint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, get her to listen to your podcast. <laughs> well, even if she doesn't listen, I can be telling her. You know, when I turn the list in, I'll be like, you know, this this I, I she she does actually do fall to priority order. So if I put certain things at the near the top, I have a tendency to um to get them. So she's, right. she's very nice that way. It depends on how expensive things are, but I mean, you know, it's, um, <laughs> you could always send her the Amazon link. That's pretty subtle. <laughs> I've done that before too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for, for the things I really want, I, I send her the Amazon link to make it totally easy for her to, to find. It's like, oh, why did you send me this? Cause it, this is, I really you're want so this. Thoughtful. Yeah. You're so thoughtful. <laughs> I, you know, I, I try to be, try to be a nice, kind person. <laughs> Now, you're you're also involved in the um, the Creep Show TV series. Well, we were involved in the uh, first season. We tried to keep the creep. It was a hard line, I think, but you know, we wanted to to harken back to the original Creep and the Creep Show. And at the same time, Greg had his own, you know, animatronic creep, so he wanted it to look a bit like that too. So, um. You know, I think we did, we got an approval and then we did one or two segments with it and then he wanted to change a little bit differently and we changed it. And, and then I think we changed it again one more time and then that was what was throughout the rest of the first season. But um, they were just short pieces. They, you know, there wasn't a huge budget. So they were, I mean, they, they were intricate to do in some ways, but uh um, I did a, tried to bring it to you know the next level that we couldn't do back in '82 uh, without computers. It would have been you know there could have been ways to come close, but it would have been extremely expensive. Um, but what we did in this one is uh, we animated the creep traditionally on paper again, and then we uh, had that inked, and then we go digital from that point. So we scan in the the drawings into my animation program and we paint them in there. Mike Schwab and Phil Wilson did inking and I did some too, but they did the major part of the inking. I was doing most of the animation. Uh, Phil did some of the in-betweening for me, but mostly Phil was doing the backgrounds and inking. And then my son Andy did the uh, painting on it for all of it, for the character work. And then I took the character levels and put them into my compositing program and added shadow levels and edge light levels. And then we also animated by hand um, highlight areas that were then composited over top of the animation too to try and get a little more dimensional feel to it. 
the uh, most complicated scene we did. I don't know if you saw that episode, but there's one where the, the door opens and the creep has a lantern and he moves a lantern from side to side and gestures inward. Well, for that, they wanted that particular lamp that was going to be with the toy. And I said, well, you know, nobody can keep a lantern mechanically accurate moving at that speed, you know. So I figured, well, I'm going to have to find a CG lamp. Well, luckily I did find the CG lamp I could buy. So I animated the creep doing all his gestures and everything. And then I took that into my 3D program, matched up the lantern to follow his hand and added the right kind of sway to it based on his motion. And then I had those two passes. And then I took it into my compositing program. And then I had to cut away the handle that he's holding on to so you could see his fingers over top of it. So it was really a complicated piece to do, but a pretty cool effect. Oh, I think so. And I, and I, and I've seen, I haven't seen all the episodes of the first season, but I saw a few of them because it's, I believe if they're on shutter only. And um, so it's a little tougher too. No, they're on Netflix now too. Oh, they're on Netflix. Now I know. Oh, well, <laughs> I could have saw them all. <laughs> yeah. I think the early season is uh, season one and maybe even two is on Netflix. At least they were last time I was. And, and they probably are. And I just but anyways, we did the, uh, we did the work on the first season, and then uh, I think the reality is that they had to take the money that they used for the animation and put it towards effects and directors and things that they really needed to. They they felt were more essential, so um, we didn't get called back, but that's okay. I enjoyed being uh, like Phil said. Who would have ever thought, you know, um, almost forty years later, we'd be working on Creep Show again? So it was. I was appreciative that Greg thought of us and uh, me and got me involved and that was fun to do. And uh, who knows, maybe they'll swing around at some point and say, hey, we have some money to cover everything now. We'd like to go back and do your creep again. You know, so who knows? Well, I'm hoping Life so. is a circle. <laughs> it is. I hope so. Because your creep is, to me, your creep is the creep. You know, it's the definitive creep. <laughs> Thank you. And. What, what can you say? I mean, it's just, I just like it. it it's, but it, it brings, brings out the comic book fan to me. It brings out the animation fan to me. And it's just hits both those wheelhouses at the same time. And uh, what can you say? It's just, it's just. Yeah. Something. I mean, there's really, we didn't talk about it, but, um, and we discuss it in Lee's book, but um, there really are two creeps. And in the first one, the creep is based off Tom's maquette. So that's the way it is in the first film. But as you know, if you were a fan of EC Comics, the creep in that style character in the comic books usually had flesh, um, was always joking. There was a lot of puns and you know, a lot of irony to everything. So when Mike asked me about doing a second film and he told me how much animation there was going to be, I said, okay, I said, I think it's really important that we design a creep that's going to have flesh on him because you're not going to be able to do lip sync and pull it off, you know, in, in a one sentence or two sentence thing, maybe, but like I said, sometimes the guy talked for 15 seconds or 20 seconds or, you know, I think one was 24 or even 30. Um, and so when 
when you don't have any flesh around the face, you can cheat the brows. They're, they're really bones, right? But if you, you can cheat that, like I did in the first film a little bit. But a lot of expression, which is necessary for the kind of dialogue and the humor that was part of Creepshow 2 and DC Comics, um, I felt he had to be able to, you know, raise and lower his brow and furrow it different ways. And most importantly, to get the dialogue to work, he had to have lips of some kind. There had to be some flesh. It could be torn away or whatever, but it had to be some kind of flesh. Uh, because if you just have a skeleton and you all you can do is open and close the mouth or jaw, the lips don't form anything, and it looks like a bad marionette act. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, because yep. nothing's, nothing's moving, nothing's changing, just the lower jaw goes up and down, so he could be saying anything. And that still doesn't look like it matches. Um, and I just thought, well, that would be terrible. And Mike agreed, and I was really happy when he did, and we wound up doing uh, the creep. And they were working on the makeup creep, which we were waiting and waiting and waiting. I mean, it's in the book. I forget exactly when, but I went back and looked, and uh, we didn't start the creep till very late. And he had the most work. But we were waiting for them to finalize the makeup. And I guess they were having trouble getting something they liked or wanted. And finally, I got a call. I don't remember if it was from Mike or David uh, saying, you know what? You're doing the creep for most of the film. How about you design the creep and we'll make the makeup work to it? So I sculpted a maquette of the uh, what I thought the creep should be. Uh, from my standpoint, and then they kind of adapted it for Tom's makeup. And I did actually, I did maquettes for about five of the characters. I made one for the creep, one for Rhino, one for Sparky, one for Mr. Haig, and one for Chris, who was modeled after my son. And and that's what I mean. Your creep is the creep. I mean, it's just the one I, I just enjoy the most because I think it's, well, actually it has the most screen time of the movie versions and stuff. And so it, it, yeah, it, it does. It, and it has, it has a personality because he talks, mm-hmm. you know, the first one just does that evil laugh. Um, but this one talks and not only does he talk, but again, it's that easy thing where it's the, the punster, it's the, it's the humor to offset gruesome goriness that those magazines were and kind of similarly you know almost like in in jaws you know scary as hell film particularly the first time you've seen it um when it first came out we were in the first row there were no seats left um always an exciting time (laughs) so but but the the different parts of humor gave you a chance to catch your breath and have a laugh between the terror of what was really going on so that's kind of what the creep was in the comic book too it was nice to see that. I thought it was nice to see that in the film. Yeah, it definitely gives you a chance to release the tension, which you have to do in between segments, and uh, whether you're reading them or seeing them. And it, 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 he did his job, but you did your job wonderfully, you know. And the voice the, the, is just perfect. I don't, I don't know who cast the voice, but the voice was perfect. <laughs> I think Mike. I think Mike Gornick picked all the voices. I or maybe especially the creep. Um, I got to go up when, uh, when they were going to record the voices. Mike said, you know, I'd like you to come up to New York when we record the creep and, and the other voices. And I said, well, you know, do you really need me to? I said, you, you know, you've been directing forever. You know what you're doing. 
I said, no, 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 I want you there or whatever. And it's like, okay, great. So um, that was fun. I got to go up and you know, the first thing I said to Joe was, you know, I really loved you and uh, your voice in Raggedy Ann and Andy is the greedy character, the one that keeps morphing out of the taffy ocean or whatever into all these different shapes and stuff. And he had that same kind of deep bellowing and slurpiness in his voice. And, you know, Mike told him, he said, you know, he, I think he asked, he said, you know, do you want me to have some fun with this? And then I said, yeah, please, you know, do. And he was adding snorts and sniffs and chortles and chuckles. And it was great. You know I mean? I, I think he maybe did a couple of lines, a couple of different ways and they were great both ways. So it was, it was a fun time. It's nice when they do line reading where you have to, where you, you enjoy two or three of the renditions that they do. And yet and you, you have a, a, a pick of treasures, so to speak, than having to find, Oh, this one works the best. It's nice to be like, I like both of these, which one should we go with? And I think that's always good when you have a quality voice actor. Oh, sure. Now evil dead Two. I mean, you, you, you are, you've been involved in some of my favorite movies growing up. It's just, it just blows my mind. <laughs> Yeah, but Evil Dead Two. Well, you probably yeah. you you were involved with probably, in my opinion, the second most famous severed hand. I think the most famous severed hand is from the Adams family, and then and then there's yours. Okay. In my mind, those are the two most famous severed hands. But your severed hand is a lot more elaborate than they had in the Adams family, and by far, in 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 a lot of aspects, is the best. I'm just saying, considered fame, you know what people know. It's it's between those two to me with severed hands. Well, I thank you, and I owe all that work to Mike Tursick. Um, if you don't know Mike Tursick, he after he left my studio, and then he went to work on uh, some of other some other George Romero films. You know, then he went out to Hollywood, and he worked on you know crazy things like Terminator and. I think he did the big T-Rex in Jurassic Park. You may have heard of Jurassic Park. You know. Just a little. Uh, no, I don't think. I, I, I know he did, you know, because then after that, he, he retired and just was doing museum dinosaur sculptures. Um, but Mike and I were friends, and um, he had come into the studio one day with these stop-motion puppets, and there, so there was this immediate affinity, and I tried to give him work whenever I had some. And uh, on Creepshow, originally... I think diehard fans know, or if you have the latest DVD, you know, but um, the one with the interview with me, um, there was supposed to be a scene where when Leslie Nielsen runs into the bathroom and slams the door, that Ted Danson was supposed to be reaching in. And of course, because his body is all desiccated from being under the water, when he slams the door, the arm would get severed and then it would crawl after Leslie Nielsen attacking and that was going to be stop motion. So I did some tests and um, then they asked for a price and I gave them a really low price, but it was still too expensive. And part of that price included, you know, again, having it was one shot that would have to go to California to have an optical done to composite it for a particular shot they needed. And it's like, well, we don't have money to do that. And then they decided that they didn't need it because um, I think the hand with Michael Caine had just come out before that and maybe another movie and, and they said well we don't want to repeat that so actually what they came up with is far better and far scarier when he turns around and they're in there but 
those tests, when when Mike Tersic left and went down to work on Evil Dead 2, and he saw they needed a severed crawling hand, he said, wait a minute, let me show you this test that Rick did for Creepshow. So he did, and they said, well, let's get Rick down here to do that. And that's how I got on Evil Dead 2 to go down and do the stop motion hand stuff. And then they still needed other effects done. They said, well, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, yes, and yes, and yes. So that's how I got to do the various uh, pieces on that. I'm trying to think how we can describe this to, in an audio podcast, but how did you go about coming up with the um, the hand and all, all the, cause, and that hand is involved uh, plot wise in a good portion of the movie. And well, was it all it's not in with? all that many shots. Well, it's not in all <laughs> it that many, but it just, like it stays with you forever. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a character of its own. Right. I mean, you know, sometimes it was a live hand with a, an appliance at the end that went up in the air, you know, beyond the wrist. Um, but when it's crawling along in the long shot and when it's sitting there tapping its fingers and uh, when it gets caught in the rat trap and stuff, and those specifically were all stop motion shots. You know, I, I had the armature that I had used in the test for, for George and Tom, but when they sent me the cast for, which was probably up at Ted Ramey's hand, but I don't know for sure. Um, they sent me the cast of the hand. I started measuring it out, and it's like, well, so we based the first one off of my hand. Well, my hand's a little bigger than whoever else they cast for Evil Dead too. So I had to remeasure some of the joints. I had to remachine, um, I think, the second and third digits on uh, most of the fingers. And then after that, you know, it was a matter of just casting it up and painting it and, and doing the animation. But I built the armature for that, and I built the armature for Henrietta and did a couple shots with Henrietta and, and the neck growing shot where her neck's growing and her face is changing. Um, Ken Brilliant helped with that, too, working on uh, I would get the cast and do the alteration on the main parts of the change. And he would finish them off and make sure that they balanced. And then he did a painting on those two for me. To me, the hand, I'm all, I, I, I've seen the movie several times, and I always come away always remembering the hand. So it's, it's, <laughs> it, it steals the show. <laughs> well, it's been, uh, it's been interesting to have had the chance to work on you know, a number of different things. I mean, in, in some ways, the hundreds of little animated characters that were cute little characters too, like for the Pittsburgh Poison Center, the Mr. Yuck and the other character I created, the happy character, um, the good characters, we called them, I can, um, you know, those were just as much fun, but of course, you know, what gets the notoriety, of course, is tends to be the film stuff and the monster stuff. And I have to admit that, you know, back when, uh, Jim Serenella got me doing conventions again about 10 years ago, I guess now. Um, it really is rewarding to hear people say how much those films meant to them and, you know, take that shot that I carry around with me and flip it. And it's, I think it's probably 120 drawings, you know, it's a 10 second shot. And people are going, wow, that's amazing. You know, the, the time it took to draw all of those and that they work together. And, you know, we wish this stuff was still being done. It's like, yeah, I know, but you know, it's neat to know that they appreciate what goes into it. 
Now, if you have time, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I did not know you were involved with this until recently. Do you have time for it? For one more? Oh, time's up. Yeah, no, good. <laughs> I had sure. no the idea. The most burning question he's ever had, and up. Oh, geez, are you? Time's up. No, go ahead. Well, you know, it's, it's the story of my life. <laughs> Running down a dream. I did not know until recently when, when preparing to do the interview with you that you were involved with the Tom Petty music video. And you need to, you need to go to my webpage more. <laughs> <laughs> go, go check out that resume page on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we did. Um, again, another uh, little blessed coincidence, quote unquote, um, Bobby Arkwright, who, was a great animator and uh, came to the animators as a an animator, but you know we really I was doing the animation. He became my assistant. He was working on things and then went out to California. And while he was out there and working for a number of studios, he had a connection and he got to do this "Run Down the Dream" video for Tom Petty, and he's a musician too, so. It was really a big deal for him to get this this music video. So one day, out of the blue, you know, he calls and he says, you know, how you doing? Or we're, we're talking and stuff. He says, listen, he said, are you guys busy right now? And I said, well, not right this second. We just finished up a commercial. And he said, if I brought in some animation, he said, how fast do you think we could bang out, like, two minutes or something? And it's like, oh, God, I don't know, Bob, but bring it in and we'll work night and day and we'll get it done, whatever we have to do. So he told us what it was and it's like, wow, that's pretty exciting. So, you know, he flew in and I think we trying to remember, I think we had, I want to say eight days. I'd have to go look it up, but I think it was, you know, it wasn't very much time at all. You know, it was, it was clever. He designed it along the lines of, uh, you know, little Nemo and slumberland kind of style with the, thicker outlines and it was all grayscale and also that style of drawing. And for some of the things that would have been difficult and, or again, impossible to do, um, computer animation was relatively new then, but he knew some people and he got, um, them to do the animation of the bed. So the, uh, integrity of the bed would stay solid. And also those city turning shots, um, those were computer rendered. And then we did our animation to match the printouts of that. So, yeah, it was a it was a fun little job. It was extremely hectic. Nobody slept that week or, or more that we had it. But, uh, in fact, and the funny part was we were shipping out the last, the bulk of the stuff to him. He had gone back. We were getting ready. We were inking and painting as much as we could for him, too, until they got back to L.A. with the rest of it. And... Um, we took it to the airport and had to make this plane. And two of the guys that took it out for me said, you know, they almost weren't going to let this on the plane. It's like, what? And they said, well, they wanted to inspect it just in case. It's like, he said, and I told him, I said, you can inspect anything you want as long as you have the tape and everything to tape this thing back up because it's got to be on that plane. <laughs> the guy said, okay, never mind. I let him through. Um, but we almost didn't get that artwork here in time. But you never know what can happen. No, you never know. And, and, and that makes it interesting with life. And uh, one one thing I've, I've always tried to ask everybody 
is what's something that you've been, been involved in involved in that you've always wished somebody would ask you about, but you don't really get the question. Oh, geez. That's, that's a really tough question. I'm glad you saved it for the end. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess, you know, the better known stuff obviously are things that I point to as, I mean, just as one example, when I started doing conventions again, I started pulling out some artwork to take around. I started looking through some of these sequences again. And the reality is, if you're a professional, once you complete a job, you know, you're pretty much on to the next job. You don't sit there and admire yourself, you know, admire the work you did and keep patting yourself on the back. You're off to the next challenge and the next thing that needs done. So after pulling this artwork back out, after not having seen it for a long time, I did pull out a couple of things, including a couple of shots of the creep and the Venus flytrap shot I did. And I looking at it, I was going like, darn, you know, there's some really fine drawing going on in here. And the animation is really good too. And you just, forget that because I'm not somebody who jumps up and down and pats himself on the back very much despite this interview. And, uh, <laughs> but, but it was neat to go back with fresh eyes and look at it and go, wow, we really did some pretty cool stuff. I guess maybe the only thing, it was only one show, but that I had a lot of fun doing was, uh, the roughnecks, uh, starship troopers chronicles, which was a, um, all CG series flat earth had an episode and they needed some help. And so I got to animate um, a good bit of one of the episodes, which was a lot of fun to do. And then right after that, we started on the second one and then they turned it back to foundation imaging. So that ended that, but it was kind of fun to, uh, it was also fun to work on because a lot of the things that we have now, and computer animation programs didn't exist then and we had to find ways to basically like we were talking about find some creative way some cheat even if it's a visual cheat to make it look like this is happening when in reality it can't because those tools don't exist yet <laughs> so i mean i guess that's probably the only thing i can think of most everybody talks about um the other stuff you know the the feature film stuff so now there is a you know and, and the kids you know sometimes nobody knows I do kids but uh, you mentioned that too so I, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head other than you know I got to help on Ray Harry Robinson's Master of the Magics uh, Ernie Farino we've been friends for over forty years or so now and when he was working on those um, it's a big three volume set on Ray if you haven't seen it. And it's amazing. You know, it's just tons and tons of photos. And he asked me if I'd like to be involved. And I said, sure. So I got to help proofread it, add some information, add some photos, scan thousands of photos uh, for him to save him some of the work. And um, that was a lot of fun, too. I can imagine looking at Ray's stuff. I mean, it's just you, you fanboying out as you're, as you're scanning it in, you get the, you know, it, it's gotta be fun. Well, it was fun. It was a tremendous amount of work. A little side highlight was um, one day, you know, it's always fun to get a present, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially when you're not expecting one. Well, I, I don't know how long I've been working on, you know, probably a few months 
working on scanning all these images and stuff. And I I hear this delivery one day, and I get down to my porch, and there's this box that's like two feet by two feet by two feet, or maybe a little bit more. It's like I didn't order anything. What could this be? And so I look and I look at the return address, and I'm thinking, no, it couldn't. And I open it up, and it's a resin cast of Ray's Emir. They were, they got a license to make a certain number of them, and so Ernie got one for me, and sent it to me as something to keep me energized and inspired. <laughs> And uh, I called right away. I said, Ernie, I just got this. He said, yeah, he says, I thought you'd like that. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I think I like it. <laughs> so um, that was really that was really special. But uh, getting to work on the books was really cool. Now I have a, I have a podcasting partner that we do um, on, that joins with me on occasion, and he had he had one quest, he had a couple questions that he wanted me to ask you, but we already answered um, those questions except for one. Uh, okay. was working in the film industry. His name's Alistair, by the way, um, was working in the film industry, a long-term goal or did things just work out that way? So did you, I think we kind of answered this a little bit, but. Well, you know, when you're young, you have these illusions, you know, my, <laughs> when I saw Ray's work and decided that's what I want to do and started doing my tests and examples and, trying to work out how to do these things. And, you know, there was, there was nothing printed, of course. You know, nobody told you how Ray did his dynamation split. Nobody really understood it. I had a couple of books, and I understood how to do a split-screen math, but um, <clears throat> some of the things Ray did were, were pretty clever. And I wasn't that clever yet at, uh, you know, 19. So everybody has this idea that they do want to get into feature film. I think, you know, there's, I certainly did. And um, I think it's a goal. You know, I, I told everybody, uh, yeah, my goal is to have an Academy Award by the time I'm 21. That was probably overly ambitious, um, especially staying in Pittsburgh. But I did go out to L.A. after, um, I guess it was 1979. I, my uh, partner, Bob Wolcott, he said, you know, he said, I think I'd like to just pull back and do motion graphic stuff. And he said, I know you're getting more into working on features and character animations or thing. And, you know, maybe you want to open your own studio or, you know, maybe you want to go out to the coast. I don't know. And so I thought about it. So I went out to the coast for a week to check out some studios and show my work. And I just decided I, I couldn't make that commitment to, uh, I'd have to give up our home here to get an apartment there. You know, I think we had at least three of our kids at that point. And I wasn't going to stuff everybody into this little tiny apartment just for my dream. And some of the areas out there were already starting to be not so good. And um, frankly, on the side, I saw some great people and I saw some real backstabbing going on. And I thought, I'm just going to go back to Pittsburgh. And if I'm going to make it at all, I should be able to set up a studio and continue doing what I'm doing. So yeah, it's a, it's a goal to get into features. I was fortunate to um, make that connection with George that we got to work on Night of the Living Dead. And then so many other things that whenever a film came around, like, I mean, I did a lot of different things on some of the other films. Um, I did some storyboards on the dark half and some of the effects work and 
you know, just different things on each each film sometimes. But yeah, everybody wants to get there, and that's a goal. How I got onto the Romero films was through my association with George, and also through Mike Gornick, especially for Creepshow Two. And then again, the alliances with Mike Tursick being a good friend and recommending me to um, Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi for doing the hand first and then the other things. So you know, generally, I think if you if you care about your work and you do good work, and I hopefully I do, you have a certain reputation for a certain level of quality and delivering. You know, you you treat people the right way, and you don't screw people over. And um, when something comes up, if they think you're good for it, they say, "Well, you know, he's a good guy. Why don't you get him?" And uh, of course, I also had a great uh, great opportunity in working with Phil Wilson, who did all the backgrounds on both Creepshow films that really contribute to the look of it. And Phil did, you know, a lot of in betweening and some of the animation sequences too. Like he did, you know, hard stuff too. He did Billy riding the bike. And I gave him that one because I knew he's a really detailed person. I knew he could make it work. Um, Ron Friends you know, helped with design and he was my in-betweener um, in the first film. And, you know, you, you have to have other people around you. Um, so it's worked out pretty well so far. Um, mostly I kind of do conventions and, and produce kits. So you'll probably see me at a convention somewhere, hopefully, now that COVID is all over. You know, maybe we'll be uh, coming to a convention near you sometime soon. Well, I'll probably hopefully see you again at Monster Bash. And, uh, and for listeners that want to purchase your kits and look at some other stuff, you can go to the rickcatazone.com and it's pretty much got about him, the resin kits, a shop, you know, and that kind of stuff. So you, you can go there and see these kits that we're talking about and purchase some of them. You know, I mean, they're, it, they're not all of them are available anymore. Some of them are sold out. looks like or out of stock. Well, some of them, I mean, it depends which ones. Um, I, I have some parts cast for other kits because when I'm doing casting, it's never like one whole kit and then a second whole kit. You know, I'm, I'm doing pieces and filling molds and stuff. So, you know, if they want a particular kit, I might need to only cast a couple pieces for it. But I mean, I think the molds are still fine. So it uh, depends what it is. If it's one of the newer ones, it might be um, easier to get. But I mean, it tells you on the website, if, if you're interested in something, you know, email me and you know, if the answer is yes, I can do it. I can do it. And if the answer is no, I can't do it anymore. It would cost too much to remake molds. And you have to wait for my new kit. <laughs> this has been a great interview. I've had a great conversation with you talking about the stuff and uh, your work holds up today, just as to me, just as well as it did back then. And I think it goes back to what you were just saying because of your professionalism, your creativity and everything like that. You had, a career that's gone over 50 years. So it's, it's not, you know, so for people wondering, is it a long-term career? Yes. And you were successful in it. And because you were able to do what you wanted to do with at your location, basically with, and raise your family and, and now enjoying life with your grandkids and stuff like that. I mean, I, I don't think many people could ask for anything more. Well, no, I've, I've had a uh, pretty good life so far, and um, 
thank God I've always been really physically active. So I'm still really physically active. I finally had to quit playing soccer at 72 when I racked my knee up a little too badly, but, uh, I am still working out and stuff and, um, who knows? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and now that COVID is, is pretty much the pandemic's pretty much ending and things are opening up. Hopefully, um, more work will start coming your way and um, you'll be able to get back into the fray if you, if that's what you choose to do. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoy doing conventions. I mean, I, I have kind of a travel limit on mine. I, you know, how far I'll, I'm willing to drive, but, uh, I, um, I really enjoy doing conventions and stuff and, um, producing kits. I've been thinking about maybe doing some illustrations and offering, uh, commission works and thinking about doing, uh, you know, whether somebody wants a classic monster scene or a Harry Housen scene, maybe doing a, a charcoal of that or something. And um, maybe doing that as a sideline, you know, I don't, I don't have a set schedule anymore. I get to do whatever I want. So I mean, right now I'm working on some, what will be renderings for a book, but um, it, I just like to do different things. You know, <laughs> God's afforded me to, certain amount of ability and the, and the opportunity to do a lot of different things, which, which kind of has its downside in terms of trying to keep my cramped studio room, even <laughs> semi clean. Cause it's like, well, there's the stop motion stuff and there's the 2d animation stuff and the Disney stuff. And then there's books on storyboarding and cinematography and all my comic book artists that I've loved from the time I was little to the ones that have, you know, are more recent and books on sculpting and kit making. And, you know, it just doesn't end. It's like you're running out of space. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes that's a good thing because it means you're, you know, you have a lot of different things there and um, that you're interested in and it's your studio. Yeah. So as long as you're able to get your work done, I guess it's, you know, it's, it's it'll eventually be somebody else's problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it needs to get clean. So it's not somebody else's problem. <laughs> <laughs> I created the mess. I need to get the mess taken care of, you know. That is true. That is true. And and I want to thank you. I hope you enjoyed this time that we had together. Sure, it was fun. And and, and um, listeners, again, go to his website. You can find his different stuff there that's available. And look at the convention area. If you're on the East Coast in the Pittsburgh area, you know, pretty much the, the, that multi-state area. I think you've been to New Jersey and stuff like that. Um, pay yeah, man, we've been as far as Indianapolis and, uh, geez, I mean, Baltimore and New Jersey and New York. And, um, it's, you know, when it hits beyond a nine hour drive, it's like, I say, no, I don't think so. Cause it, it throws an extra day on each end of the trip and stuff. And, um, there's a, there's a point where the convention would have to be large enough to make that also pay off to not just give up a three day weekend, but then two more days on top of that, you're talking about five days out of a, and if I'm not doing anything, that's one thing. But if I'm working on uh, a project like I am now, I can't necessarily uh, take five days off. So longer ones are, are ones that I generally don't, don't say yes to. <laughs> yeah. So those those like Midwest East coast area, pay attention, you know, look for them and that way you can go and, um, and meet you in person and, and, and like I said, get an autographed picture or picture or whatever, you know, photograph with you. And, um, and usually I think every time I've seen you, your wife has been there and she's also a joy to talk to. 
Yeah, she's uh, she's always been extremely congenial, <laughs> and uh, yeah, she'll. Um, she, I mean, I think we're both pretty friendly. I mean, she's she's a little more conversation starting sometimes than I might be. But you know, if you ask a question and we start talking, then you know, one thing leads to another, and pretty soon we're in a deep conversation and stuff. But yeah, well, we've. I mean, I. I always go back to one of the first chillers that we did. Um, this couple came in and they were talking to us and uh, they came back later and they were talking to us and they said, well, you know, said, this is the first night, right? And they said, well, we're going to be leaving. And I said, what are you leaving? I said, there's two more days to this convention. You couldn't have seen everything or anybody. And they said, well, to tell you the truth, you know, we, we were in the other room and we saw a lot of the stars we wanted to come and see. and um, you know, you two are the nicest people here and spent the most time with us and nobody else is doing that. So we saw who we wanted to see. And so we, you know, we, we got a couple other autographs we wanted and we're just going to go home because <laughs> it's not going to get any better than this. And it's like, okay, you made my day. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I, I admit, so, talking to you both at bash at um, the monster bash times, the two times I met you guys and you're both very friendly and other stuff. And you know, it's, uh, I, you know, just to go up there and strike conversations. With, I think we talked about a wide variety of topics. It wasn't always about your work at hand, but it was about other stuff, and uh, it was it was very enjoyable time. Yeah, it's always fun. You know, I mean, um, people have questions about how things were done, and then you tell them, and it's like, wow, I never knew that. You know, or some people you know, like for um, Creep Show. <clears throat> my son recorded an interview for me for the last DVD and I pretty much went through how we did everything. So now people that have that, you know, they're, they're getting a little bit more information these days. And it's like, well, I know how you did this, you know, it's like, okay, but you know, I did this. <laughs> yeah, you only know that so, trick. Yeah, you didn't know this fun. trick. <laughs> 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 I think I exposed it all. I mean, there could be something I missed, but I think I exposed it all in there because I wanted to have one I had the opportunity to do it and I thought well let's make this the most complete as far as I could tell I mean I made myself a lot of notes about what I wanted to cover and I just I wanted it to be as complete a record of how things were done because again going back to the Don Blue thing nobody wrote down a lot of stuff of how they did things at Disney's I guess and uh, a lot of the techniques and the way they did things were lost mm-hmm. it's like well you know just for just for history's sake, when people say, well, how did they do that back then in the dark ages? It's like, oh, that's how they did it. You know, so somewhere there's a record of it. I mean, I wish Ray had done um, more of that, but um, the the books that he finally came out with were, were certainly helpful and um, wish I'd had when I was 16, but, (laughs) but it's nice that there's now a pretty good record and the Ray Harry, I was a master of magic books are just, I think they're at the top of the line for inside information and photos and everything else, you know? Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, it's been fun, Steve. I guess I'll see you somewhere at a convention. Well, it's been fun too. And I'm going to say goodbye listeners. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, stay tuned in the next episode. We're going to be doing a movie that's decided by the roll of a die or another interview. Otherwise everybody have a good day. Hello everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Just let you know, we're closing in on episode 100. We're, 
Um, so please feel free to send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com to let us know what your favorite episode has been so far. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this little radio promo from Creepshow. Stephen King. His stories have terrified millions. George A. Romero. His films have frightened the world. Now, the masters of horror have created an entirely new experience. Creep Show. A movie that will give you the creeps. Creep Show. The most fun you'll ever have. Being scared. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. <laughs> 